Welcome to hey. another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice. You are? I didn't know that. Yes, you did. I mean, I, I definitely did. Why are, you, why are you setting the precedent of lying to our listeners? I Out thought I was gate. being cute. That's why. It's a thing. It's, a, it's a skit we do. You know, I, a, think they, I think they know. It's part mm. of our bit. <laughs> yeah. It's not a good bit. I'm, <laughs> I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. As you heard, Catherine Rubino and Chris Williams are both here. We are we do this every week where we talk about some of the bigger stories of the week in legal news. But first, obviously, we begin with a little bit of... A little bit about ourselves, a little bit about our weekend, who just, we are as people. In a segment we there call Small go. Talk. Small Talk. Okay. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I think we are all recovering from, you know, the, the emotional roller coaster that was the spy balloon getting blown up. Now, <laughs> we can now move on with our lives. We can, we can. How was how your weekend, Joe Patrice? Yeah, no, it was good. Went to a birthday thing, so, you know. Mm-mm. I did, I don't know if you did. Did you watch any of the Pro Bowl weekend? Yes, obviously, because it was fantastic. I really cannot say enough awesome things about how much fun the whole Pro Bowl experience was this weekend. Not that I went, but I watched on television, and it was a delightful time. Yeah, it's as though they finally figured out how this awkward product that they've had for years and never does well, how to actually make it exciting and interesting. And yeah, yeah good it, for them. It was great. For those that don't know, there was a bunch of skills competitions, which were fun and kind of, there was like an obstacle course. There was like a, a kicking tic-tac-toe. They had to kick like certain you know places on a board somewhere. But the sort of main event was a series of flag football games. Yeah. And it was so much fun, first of all, because, you know, risk of CTE significantly lowered in flag football, <laughs> you know, which I appreciate. But also, it was really Why great even time. watch? <laughs> I think one of the things, like, one of the profane things everybody just accepts is, like, watching football is kind of like NASCAR. Like, you watch it for the accidents, you know? Yeah. I don't I think, think anybody mean. watches NASCAR for the accidents either. But, yes. <laughs> uh, but, no, it's, yeah. it's great. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it was great to actually see the players' faces. There's no helmets. You could actually see. And they looked like they were having a great time. Yeah. And, honestly, it's fun to watch people have fun. Yeah. Like, that's a good time. I would 100% watch this all the time if this was. I was <laughs> I was a little annoyed there was no fantasy points on the line. Particularly Geno Smith was a damn machine in yeah. the first uh, <laughs> flag football game. But, you know, it was a great product that they're selling us these days. It was fun. I did, I did see that because uh, I did the birthday thing Saturday, watched the Sunday coverage mm. of that. Yeah, no, it was uh, exciting stuff. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing good. Um, mm. I just I hit 99 RuneCraft playing RuneScape this weekend, and that was a, Those uh, are a accomplishment months in the making. Yes. Mm. Congratulations, then. Three people who know what these words mean, I finally did it. So excited. <laughs> Very happy. And proud we are of all of them. Yeah. 13-year-old me is, is uh, over, overjoyed. Question. Joe, mm. are you wearing a Black Sabbath shirt? No. I am wearing a black and white shirt, which is a bar that I frequented back in the day. So, ah, that's, yeah. While it is not as cool, it is on brand. 
Yeah, unfortunately, another uh, victim of COVID closed down seemingly permanently. Well, I mean, oh, it, they they claim they're move, they're going to try to find sure. a new location. It's twenty twenty three, but at this point, yeah. they have not yet, so it is problematic. Anyway, yeah, no. Uh, so that is all of that. Now, uh, mm. I think that could be the end of small talk. Small talk. Yeah, so let's uh, get into some topics. Where do we want to get started? Do we dealer's think? choice, my friend? Dealer's mm, choice. Mm. See, uh, that's what we say when we haven't read the pre-recording email about what's coming up. I and planning just to wing it. I hate everybody. Hey, did you know? <laughs> I don't understand why I even try to organize this. Uh, so. The nation's largest and most elite law firms. I don't know if you know this, but these large elite law firms that represent the biggest and most powerful corporations in the world uh, are suffering from an outbreak of woke cancel culture. Did you know that? Bullshit. Yeah, oh, that's no. well, that is also true. <laughs> what are, yeah, the, I mean, are are the blacks and gays getting uppity again? Uh, it, well, I mean that that certainly seems to be the claim here. There was a lot of talk about this. Um, David Latt, uh, former Above the Law editor himself, put out an op-ed in the Boston Globe talking about the cancel culture that has taken over big law. Uh, this prompted a lot of us to say, Bullshit. what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this has become a topic of the week for those of us who cover a lot of the, the, the legal market because, of course, this is a prominent allegation of uh, – of a change in the way in which law firms operate. Yeah, and, and I think your sort of intro kind of flags the number one issue. How woke can you truly be if your entire way of making money is representing multi-billion dollar companies? It does present a bit of a problem. <laughs> it's, like you, it's like misusing the word to the point of utter meaninglessness. Yeah. Now, now that, of course, is more uh, Jay Willis at Balls and Strikes. He wrote a piece on the, uh, in reaction to this, and he leans a little bit more into that point that big law as an organization represents these, you know, fairly powerful transnational corporations, which suggests that you can't really be all that woke. That said, I, I didn't necessarily go down that route with my reaction to the piece. My reaction to the piece was more to focus in on the question of whether or not the anecdotes that make up this story were really justified mm. uh, because it is it is a a piece the globe piece is not really backed by a lot of you know just a couple hard of numbers incidents. yeah some incidents some anecdotal stories one of which I, I think the actual person's name or firm is not known right one one is one so is hard list, to fact check that one 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 is kind of an anonymous uh, but of the ones that we know about. The problem is that the the framing of them all overlook a few key, a few key details yeah. <laughs> uh, that that change it a little bit. I, what about my argument more was that, and I, I made this argument at the time when one of these stories happened, when Paul Clement and Aaron Murphy left Kirkland right after winning the gun case at the Supreme Court, Clement wrote this very whiny op-ed about how all these law firms are out to get him because he has unpopular views or whatever, which wasn't, which was overlooking a few things. Most importantly, the fact that Kirkland's clients were not particularly happy <laughs> that the law firm that they attached their names to as a branding matter was, you know. Representing the NRA. 
arguing for yeah. more school shootings in the world, which, you know, they, they get touchy about that. <laughs> I don't know as though that's a sign of, a, of wokeness as much as... Capitalism. Bi- it's pure capitalism. Yeah, businesses kind of like making money, and part of that is having customers not hate you. Yeah, that was never woke. That was supposed to be what the marketplace of ideas was about. <laughs> right. Like, definitionally. So, so, yeah, so that's the story there. The other story that gets cited in this article is about Robin Keller, which who you've covered. Yes, extensively. Uh, yeah, yeah, so now, now give us a quick update on what the Robin Keller story yes, is. Yes, she was a retired uh, partner at Hogan Lovells, and in the wake of the Dobbs decision, there was a women's meeting discussing the ramifications of the decision, and at that meeting, she made claims about abortion being... Uh, quote, black genocide. Um, oh, that one. Yeah, yeah. That so, one always comes up. So definitely uh, trading in racist tropes about reproductive freedom. A number of people, again, this was hundreds of people at the meeting. People were upset. People were offended, et cetera. As a result of that incident, the firm parted ways with Keller. Yeah, and now in Lat's coverage of this, it's it's framed as... She had unpopular views on Dobbs and therefore was kicked out, which seems to miss that little (laughs) bit about telling all the black folks in the meeting that they're responsible for a genocide. Right. And and I believe the the sort of reports that we have from folks that were at the meeting was that um, partners in real time very clearly and definitively shut her down, which was fantastic and, and wonderful to see. But yeah, no, definitely, definitely problematic. Yeah. So, so my takeaway was mu- much more focused on this is not some sort of a conversation about cancel culture. It, this, to the extent that isn't actually a thing in the real world or as opposed to just a talking point. What's really going on here is big law firms like making a lot of money, mm-hmm. and they care about that a lot more than your feelings. Uh, if you're some sort of partner who wants to use your platform to mouth off about stuff, uh, the firm's going to prefer to make money. Yeah. Which, I mean, and that's the other thing. Like, these aren't summer associates who decided to mouth off. Like, these are partners right. who had been there for a while. This is this is a situation, it's not like a, the law firm has some sort of left-leaning conscious the the law firm happily employ these people happily makes money off of these folks for for, years in both of the instances they were employed by the firm for a very long time it was only when they became outspoken or very you know in clement's case very publicly associated with these causes that they said this no longer makes sense for us as a monetary matter i mean kirkland brought him on remember he'd already written an op-ed complaining about leaving King and Spaulding when King and Spaulding had the same issue over his marriage equality fight. So this was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, it, but, but it does mean that these firms are happy to make money off of folks right up until it starts looking like it's going to hurt their bottom line. And when that happens, you know, you can't really complain about I mean, people are complaining. They yeah, can, I mean, well, no, they I'm, shouldn't. They shouldn't. Yeah, I mean, look, you you bought into a system, and that system, and that wheel comes around, and you got to take your lumps yeah. when you no longer are uh, the most important money making part of the yeah scheme. Big law is not known for being a warm and fuzzy employer. They will 
cut ties with you if you are no longer making them money. And that is all as true of partners as it is of associates. Yeah, but I, but I do think there's it is interesting, though, what there's something to Lat's argument that I find interesting, which is that the whole argument of these folks is somehow that law firms have this kind of liberal bias to them, which I don't necessarily know as though that's true. But I do wonder to what extent there is something there, but it being more reflective of the way in which business has a minor liberal bent, not because it's you know, trying to save the universe. I don't think Exxon is trying to save the universe <laughs> or anything, but that it does understand that the the temperature of the of the market is one that prefers not mm. rocking the boat. Uh, and honestly, yeah. honestly, I think that one. I think that one dimension of it is that businesses are averse to getting sued. Like one example of, <laughs> well, that true. I would think of, of being like what I would imagine some people being like, "Oh, this is rampant woke culture." Work woke culture when it's actually just, "Oh no, this is just." a lawsuit waiting to happen was that story where there was a woman who was pregnant um, and she got accused of like sitting on her ass because of, um, Oh yeah. And like, and I, I could imagine like a, a right wing response to that is see people don't need really to work anymore. What happened to strong women who would like give birth on tables who were like still doing litigating, like as they were pushing what happened to strong work culture. It's like, no, we don't do that. <laughs> like I could imagine that being read as being like a woke response to, you know, partner dies long with the firm culture, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that the, given that the, I'm kind of leaning on, on the clients here, I mean, I wonder if to what extent that what Lat's article describes as liberal is much more kind of a, a defense of the status quo, uh, not rocking the boat. Uh, like, while there may be people on the quote unquote left who are, you know, more progressive and agitate for change, the kind of corporate Democrat middle yeah, there I mean, is I, very hey let's just let's just stay the course which i think might be the mood yeah and i think that some of the evidence that he used to support the proposition that big law leans left is that political donations um mm -hmm. at big law firms tend to lean towards democratic candidates i mean i think that progressives would certainly say that saying all democratic candidates are woke is false right is, is a false equivalency and again does damage to the meaning of that word but that is that is what he uses but i think that in a lot of first of all a lot of cases people are donating to multiple um, right. candidates corporations donate to you know multiple people on the same election all the time but i also think it's a matter of personal politics that's not necessarily what happens in the law firm I do think this is an interesting question, though, about whether or not that kind of centrist left center liberal position is the default state that major corporations want. Mm -hmm. They don't want anything, certainly, to the left of it, but they also don't necessarily appreciate things to the right of it. Well, if for no other reason than alienating, well, yeah. alienating potential customers, you mm -hmm. know, like it, it, it is a much better place to be to kind of be generally fiscally conservative and socially liberal uh, from the business's perspective, perhaps. And I, and I perhaps. think that in the 90s, the Democratic Party took a turn towards corporate interests. Mm -hmm. That is what is being reflected in those numbers. Yeah. They're Democrat, mainstream Democrats are very pro-corporations more than almost anything else. <laughs> right. So uh, that just seems to make a lot of sense for people who make their money via corporations to lean towards the party that has branded themselves as very pro-corporation. Yeah. 
Yeah, interesting. I think well, it really is. I think it really is about wanting their profits and eating them too. Like nothing prevents yeah. Nike from having a um, back the blue commercial in five years if that's how the money sways. Well, yeah, it, exactly. And I think I think that's kind of the issue that it is how the money is going, mm-hmm. and that to the extent his article focuses on these donations, like Catherine's saying, I think that's right. That 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 might just be that that is where the money is, at least as companies it, see it, as we currently define stuff. Yeah. I think that's true. Calidus AI cleverly supports you by suggesting relevant law to address your complex issues. Put in simple questions or longer fact patterns, then Calidus asks you to confirm if points are salient before proceeding. Use Calidus to check if you found all the key concepts, cases, and statutes. Calidus turns that into a high-quality, customer-ready document. Handle complexity confidently with Legal's most advanced AI platform. Get $90 off your first two months. Use promo code Joe at CalidusAI.com. That's C-A-L-L-I-D-U-S-A-I.com. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. All right. Well, let's talk now about something interesting that there were a few stories about uh, over the last week, I guess. So, Chris, you had a story about a judge who was punishing a woman. Well, not really punishing, but ordered a woman to take back some of the things she'd said publicly. Yeah. So and this and this might be the the tension that that um that made us want to talk about the story. So mm-hmm. the fact pattern was there's a woman in North Carolina. She got in some uh, traffic trouble. Um, person she was driving with died and she presented herself as being a victim. She had a GoFundMe. She had statements made on Facebook, other social medias, you know, trying to raise money. Turns out that wasn't the case. A judge, Judge Lou Trausch, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but he ordered her to apologize. And the the weird thing about it was that he ordered her to apologize on social media, on Facebook. Mm-hmm to apologize to people on GoFundMe. And he also ordered her to apologize and retell her story in traffic court. Right. And for me, this sounds like just textbook compelled speech. You know, this, it feels inconditional. You know, there's, I mean, we get it. The power of the state is that they have the purview to control bodies, right? I mean, it's part of the reasons why the state is the only one that can enact legitimate violence, right? But- they cannot police our thoughts or the expressions of our wills. I mean, that's what the first that's one of the first minutes is about, right? Compelled speech is unconstitutional. Well, um, she agreed to the to the terms of the, the these conditions, right? So is it compelled as much as something she agreed to? Yeah, she's being held to the plea agreement. Right. Is kind right. of what I think. And that was yeah. one of the terms because she lied on social media in order to get money, was the allegations, right? Well, right. My, well, my thing is it's like like, doesn't that just 
describe like doesn't that reveal whether or not she's truly earnest about her plea agreement you know whether or not she's willing to now tell the truth about what happened i think is i think that the the significance of like plea deals one it's like it's a it's a the one factor of our judicial system is that it is focused on getting plea bargains from people like that that that's not a question mm. of like truth or anything it's about expediency in court in court well, um, that's certainly one of the factors but i don't i don't think it's the only one i think it's a major one um and and for example and an example of forwarding that there are many people who uh for whatever reasons whether they did the crime or not have signed plea plea bargains saying that they were guilty of manslaughter or what have you they get a they get a relief sentence the court gets the expediency of not having to go through trial and they are still able to say things like I did not commit murder or I did not do whatever amount of things that they sure, agreed they don't to, have to well, go through the time or expense of a trial. Well, well, all right. So, so I mean, I think that's a good point, but let's uh, breaking that down. What I'm saying is agreeing to a plea bargain doesn't mean that your, your, tr- your truth state, your truth claims henceforth are able to be further ruled on. One, one, I think it absolutely is. Uh, and I think that actually the terms of the plea agreement are that you are swearing that this actually happened. I mean, it is lying under oath if you if your allocution where you say I did this and I feel bad about it. And then you turn around and say that's not true. You've but like, you know, lied under oath. A, that is important. But like there's a, there's a difference between saying like so like my, my response to it is, OK, if if it was if the statement she said were fraudulent. Mm-hmm. Have her order her to take down the GoFundMe or order or order her to reimburse the people that she frauded. But it is a different thing to make her say, I am sorry, because what if she's actually not or like, well, what it well, but that or to but like, compel her to verse to her give some sob story one to 15 times in traffic court. But like, but that's the th- but that's the thing to get the plea. She did have to say under oath that she was sorry. If she lied about that, then she does not get to have the benefit of the plea. This is the same to transition a little bit. This is the same thing actually that happened this week in court in D.C. because one of the January six folks, Thomas Adams Jr., had taken a plea deal saying he did this and was sorry about it under oath, like all plea deals function. And he's been going around saying, I didn't do anything wrong. I would do it all again. And the judge said, issued a show cause order on Friday, like, you give me any reason why I don't take away your plea deal and put you in prison right now, which is actually the right response to that. You can't can't lie to the court. Okay, so this might not be a legal argument. I think it is a human one. Like, there are, I I think that we can both agree that there are times where people can feel sorry for, for one thing and then feel and not feel sorry for it at another time. Like I, there are times where I've been remorseful on a Tuesday and not remorseful on a Wednesday. It could be the sure, case. But when the Tuesday, January 6th defendants are trying to get publicity and trying to very much enrich themselves by going on these right mean right wing media sources, trying to get publicity over it saying, Oh, I would do it all again. I think that the judge not only can, but affirmatively should issue these show cause orders to, well, to find out what's really going on. Here. I think, I, it, I think, well, I think it's, I think it's, I think when you're talking, I think that this is a, um, especially, you know, insurrection, that's a charged example. I'm just saying just down to earth, theoretically, like down, down to earth, practically for you to say it is a, a person is necessarily lying for them to now say X. I don't think that's the case. I think well, they have to answer no. the show cause order. Well, well, right. They can they can answer the show cause order. And maybe they'll have something. Which and, and I think what what, what, is, how, how, what do you mean? How, how would they show cause of not necessarily being sorry on a later date? Would they be would they be a lie detector? Like no no. This how is would an you ex- prove 
I mean, very, very easily, actually. This is the this is a Central Park Five sort of situation, right? Where they, because they were bullied and harassed by law enforcement and prosecutors, signed on to a plea agreement for a crime they did not commit, ultimately exonerated by raising that I agreed to this under duress and it was wrong. And you could say that that's what happened and I shouldn't have agreed. And this really gets to that expediency point, which I think is a good one. But I want to make a distinction here, which is, from the prosecutor's perspective, they're looking for expediency. The judge is in a different position. The judge's job is to make sure that the person agreeing to it actually is telling the truth and not under duress and has agreed to it willingly and is saying the truth when they say that they did it and they're sorry. Uh, and that's why, and it doesn't happen nearly often enough, but that's why you have these instances where folks show up and say, here's my, I'm, here's my guilty plea, and judges go, I'm rejecting that. I don't think it's, I don't think that really happened here. Uh, okay. It doesn't happen enough, but it, that is what the judge's role in this is, which is distinct from the prosecutors who, like you said, are very much trying to be efficient. I also think that it's important to be like, even if it is the case that there are theories of justice where it is effective to be interested in the mental states of the accused and like evaluating the truth, the veracity of the things that they say, maybe in the instance and maybe in the interest of expediency where there's a benefit to them to lie. I think it's also important to think about if this is actually a constitutional issue, we should start with the Constitution and not with the matter of um, the events that happened, because it could be the case that ultimately what happened was unconstitutional. Sure. Well, well, right. And you can and you can have those challenges, too. And I think that that's a good example where you don't you don't take as given necessarily what they have sworn to because maybe it was under duress and whatever. And that challenge can happen. But if you're not if a person has agreed to a guilty plea who is not prepared to challenge that they did it under duress, but is just like, yep, I lied under under oath to get the benefit of this deal, then that deal you know, can be revoked, it would strike me. So what is the constitutional basis for a person needing to apologize publicly? Well, yeah, to take a guilty plea, like one of the, one of the standards of that is you then have to actually go, then you give it what's called an allocution where you actually stand up and under oath tell the judge, I am not doing this for any for any gain, like I'm not under duress, I'm not like, I, I'm really serious. I absolutely committed the following acts that were illegal yeah. and these things are bad. And the judge then uh, can evaluate whether or not they think you're actually telling the truth about that. And if you aren't, they can, uh, they can say no. Uh, there was a very high profile situation of this several years ago where a corporation, it was a corporate Thing, and I can't remember which big bank or whatever was saying, yep, we did this. So therefore, we deserve the slap on the wrist the prosecutors are giving us. And the judge was like, nope, nope. <laughs> we don't think you're telling the truth about being sorry about this. Uh, and, and that is obviously not something that happens enough in our system, but probably is the it, it does speak to what the judge's role is supposed to be in this equation. But it, but I I thought this was an interesting story because you'd written that and then like the day after we had the story about the January sixth situation and I thought all of the I thought it was worth, worthy of a discussion because there are a lot of these like at what point you know how do we deal with the fact that these sorts of agreements exist and the, well, and again, it uh, is a problem that there's overcharging and so on. Well, nothing again to ret return to the, the the constitutionality point of it. Um, there was a case Barnett. And the the standard um, that they found in it was that 
to there had to be like the compelling speech, what mm. have you, whatever the had to be something that was necessary to prevent a grave and imminent danger. Right, but but it's not compelled speech because it's an agreement. It's basically like a constitu- It's basically like a contractual thing. If you contract to to an, a, agree to do something, you can't then turn around and and breach that. It, it, it's functionally I mean, like a contract. You, I mean, if, if that's the route you want to take, like, mm-hmm. isn't it isn't it vague to say that there's a requirement that uh, she has to apologize at traffic court without specifying the number of apologies or not, like not, the length of not the really apolo- no like because you just do like a like a oopsie quick sorry because i feel like under that you could be like then it'd be like oh the judge would be like oh you're not sorry enough you're not proving right. you're sorry enough yes like, correct what, what, correct what that the, is what, the judge be the that is the judge's job the no, judge's job like, is to say that but if it's like a contractual thing then how would one know that the that there has been performance like how does i mean that engage? is i'm I mean, that's the judge's role, right? That, that's the unique role that the judge is in is to evaluate that. Right. Value. Based on what yeah. happened, her words. Et right. And then and then if if ultimately she doesn't want to do all that, we can go through the full trial and give her so, the full benefit of whatever the sentence would be in full. So in your mind, it, it makes sense that there could have been like, say, somebody stole a loaf of bread in 1800. And sure. A judge compelled. The per, a, a judge had told they the didn't person compel, they, compel, they didn't they, compel anything. They, right. They accepted a plea agreement. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they voluntarily negotiated. agreed to an agreement. Now, they could argue, again, this is the Central Park Five thing, which is a serious issue. You can challenge whether or not it was justified that the, whether you were under duress, yada, yada for that. But yeah, if you have voluntarily signed on to the agreement and want to get the benefit from it, then yes. Now, if you want to say, I don't want to get the benefit of it anymore, I am not really sorry, then you go through the full criminal process. And that's just really the whole situation. All right, well, we still have another story to get to real quick. All right, so the, to real quick to conclude uh, with a thing that happened, uh, domestic abusers can now buy guns, which is, you know, the damn Fifth Circuit, Joe. Yeah. What what is what is going on in the Fifth Circuit? So the Fifth Circuit issued a ruling where they determined that after Bruin, which was the Supreme Court case in which Justice Thomas said that if if people if it was a gun restriction that nobody would have put on the books in the late 1700s, then therefore it can't be a restriction on gun ownership today. And then the ju- and in the Fifth Circuit, they ruled that a law that punishes people for having restraining orders against them for domestic abuse, a rule that said, therefore, they, sh- they can't have guns, wouldn't be valid because in the seven, late 1700s, there's no evidence that people really cared about domestic abuse. You think that's hyperbole? No, that is actually the opinion. And so given that, the Fifth Circuit struck this They down. also didn't think women should vote. Right. You know, that might, those things might be related. These problems uh, continue, continue to be issues. Anyway, what was kind of interesting about it, though, is Judge Ho, famous recently for trying to boycott Yale law clerks. Man is a, a thirsty, thirsty judge. Yeah, so he's, his, uh, he also cares a lot about cancel culture, I guess, uh, <laughs> but more or more uh, posturing so that he can be beloved by the people who might give him a promotion someday. With that said, he wrote a concurrence where he talked about the historical precedent involved here and how clearly wrong this was. And he cited, uh, he did 
cite a few cases from before the 2000s. And what happens when you look at those cases, Joe? Well, it's interesting. See, because here's the problem with the whole historical interpretation of the Second Amendment, meaning you get to have guns and have an individual right to them. That's not what the Constitution or the law has ever said uh, until the 2000s when the Supreme Court started going down that road. And so if you start trying to cite cases from before the 2000s, you're going to have a bad time. And <laughs> and Judge Ho did. He found uh, some cases from the 50s and 60s and decided to cite those as proof that the Second Amendment covers uh, always his respected gun rights. And uh, darned if, it, if, if I don't think he read these cases before he put them up. Or more, perhaps, accurately banked on very few people doing that reading. I guess. It, I mean, it was really, from my perspective, it was really rough because it was just, like, so shoddy that, <laughs> like, I, I, like people get fired for this at law firms, you know, where you, where you cite the case without reading. It's a fireable offense. Unfortunately, yeah. he has a lifetime appointment. So the, the biggest one was he put in this Konigsberg case, uh, which, and he cited to one of the footnotes, saying that the Second Amendment is an unlimited, unqualified right. Uh, that that footnote is interesting. It, the case is actually about the First Amendment, and one side had argued the First Amendment is unqualified, and the justice, in writing the opinion, says, no, uh, it is not. <laughs> he says it may textually look unqualified, but, you know, there's tons of qualifications to it. There's defamation sure. law. There's, you know, yada, yada. And he goes through that. And then he says... Likewise, the Second Amendment reads like it's unqualified, but nobody's stupid enough to think it's unqualified either, <laughs> is functionally what this footnote says. And this is the footnote that Ho decides to put in there. Bless. Like, it's, it's not like Westlaw and Lexus and Case. It's not like these things don't exist. You know, you, you can look them up. It's very easy to read all of the cases that you cite. Yeah. One might argue you should you even have a professional responsibility to He's, read the decisions you cite. It's it's also insane that in in a defense that like, oh, the Second Amendment has always said this, all he could come up with was a First Amendment case having a footnote that casts so shade the on the whole way. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, it was uh, a toe, man. Joe, how else are you going to catch the attention of the political powers that be that you are willing and able to cast your vote for whatever the current Republican agenda is, regardless of the case law, if you're not willing to put out a concurrence like Judge Ho just did? Yeah, it does speak to uh, another story that just real quick before uh, before we go, they, the another story you had, Chris, about uh, it seems as though the existence of people like Judge Ho might be impacting <laughs> whether or not judges on the other side are uh, taking senior status. Yeah, there was uh, the good old neutral branch that is the court. Turns out, looking at the data, they're not neutral. There are a bunch of judges they were, were going to what was the what was the name of it like it's like a semi-retirement state say seen they're taking senior status uh, largely to avoid the rbg situation which uh, you right, know right. good for learning yeah uh <laughs> it, it's it's time it's time and the best students republicans yeah. and it's it's one of those things where it's like when nothing nothing makes a leftists matter than looking at the left it's like i get really really pissed off by people that copy that michelle obama they go low we go high i'm like fuck that they go low we go to hell like the the republican uh judges have been doing this very well since like bush bush jr right especially yeah anyway the point is they're retiring (laughs) they're retiring (laughs) they're retiring and it's happening on both sides you seem to yeah 
Right. Folks are starting to figure that out. Yes, because, you know, and because of people like how. Anyway, with all that said, we are done. So you should all be subscribed to the show, get new episodes when they come out, leave reviews, stars, write something. It's all great. You should be reading Above the Law every week. Check out the other shows, The Jabot, The Legal Tech Week, Journalist Roundtable, all the other things from Legal Talk Network. Follow us at various social media things, at ATL Blog, at Joseph Patrice, at Catherine One, at Rights for Rent, and I think all of that. That is the end, and we'll uh, be back. Peace. Bye. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm, and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, Join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.